Hey, welcome back to The Fire Break. I'm Steve Wolf. The Fire Break is sponsored by Team Wildfire, developing new technologies and tactics for mitigating the worst parts of wildfire. I've got an amazing guest here. I've got Michael Kodis, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and he's written an amazing book called Megafire. All right, Michael, what's Megafire about? Well, Megafire is really about the fire crisis that we've been seeing develop not just in the United States, but globally, um, really since um, the turn of the last century, since you know around the year 2000. And we've been seeing a fairly steep increase in wildfires going into that year. But uh, in the 20 years since then, you know, 24 years now, um, we've really seen um, the whole landscape of wildfire change um, in many places around the world, and particularly in the United States. Um, the term megafire, when I started working on the book, had really just uh, kind of been bandied about. And um, the U.S. Forest Service um, has defined megafire as any wildfire larger than 100,000 acres. And um, I would argue, you know, after having written the book, that that's not the best way to define a megafire. Yeah, right, um, right. You get a Marshall fire. It's it's not a hundred thousand acres. Yeah, it's a thousand homes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have you know um, lots of fires bigger than a hundred thousand acres that burn in wilderness areas and and you know uh, you know uh, mountain west forests where they've had that size of fire you know, forever, you know, and, it, and it's pretty much part of the natural cycle. And usually it's, you know, fairly good for at least parts of those forests. Doesn't really put a lot of um, resources at risk that, that humans are dependent on. And then if we look at the really devastating and deadly fires that we've seen in the last few years in Maui, here outside of Boulder in California, very few of those would meet the U.S. Forest uh, Service's standard for a megafire, but you know they kill a lot of people, they destroy a lot of homes, they have huge impacts on watersheds and other resources that we're dependent on. And I would argue that you know that's the better way to judge how mega a fire is is by the impacts Economic rather than the size and, and fatalities. Exactly. Yeah. That very interesting way to think of it. Um, what do you think are the driving factors that have made the last quarter century um, more fire prone, or, or, or if not more fire prone, more damage prone? So um, I kind of think in uh, terms of four buckets that have uh, a variety of um, more detailed causes within them, but you can kind of think of it in these four buckets and. One is um, forest management, and anybody that works in wildfire is familiar with this idea that we spent a century putting out every wildfire. We're very, very effective at putting out wildfires to this day. We still put out about 98% of wildfires that break out in the United States on initial response, and how that led to forests that are badly overgrown and more flammable and often have different species makeup um, uh, than they had historically. So they burn differently and very often burn more intensely. Um, there are other examples, for instance, in Israel, um, where I've, I've covered wildfires. Um, you know, it's what we planted. You know, they, um, uh, the Israeli government has, you know, planted about 70% of their forests. And so they've added um, huge fuel loads to the desert in a place where, you know, they're going to be pretty flammable. Right. Traditionally um, not too flammable. In the yeah. Desert, right? So I think in terms of that as kind of this forest management um, idea, the next one, which is very closely related to that, is development. And where do we build our homes and our communities and our resources that we, you know, uh, add to landscapes, you know, be it, you know, um, reservoirs or power lines? And how does that affect our fire cycle? Um, some research out of the University of Colorado here when I was uh, just finishing my book showed that um, over a 20-year period, so basically, you know, the first uh, few years of the, uh, the 21st century, about 84% of wildfires were ignited by humans. Um, you know, and most, you know, the average person thinks, oh, well, it's a cigarette out the window of a car or an arsonist. And 
certainly those things start fires, but that, those aren't the big drivers there. You know, it's, as you know, it's power lines going down. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sparks off of vehicles. It's things that we as humans, when we live in a flammable landscape, that we often take for granted that actually are ignition sources for fires. But when we develop, we also introduce whole new types of fuels into these places as well. You know, our houses and our decks and our propane tanks and, and our vehicles. And ignition, right? And, yeah. If so, there were no houses there, there probably weren't power lines. Right, exactly. So bring both the ignition source and the additional fuels. Yeah, so that's the second bucket that okay. I think of is development and how have we spread out into flammable landscapes and how are we interacting with them. Um, uh, the third one, which I've done a lot on, particularly as, you know, uh, an editor of Inside Climate News now, is uh, is climate. And wildfire, you know, globally and particularly in the Western United States, shows one of the strongest climate signals that we see. Um, there are things that are probably going to be more costly to us as humans, like sea level rise, where we see, you know, entire cities that have to move or respond to that. But sea level rise is pretty slow. You know, this, yeah. this happens, you know, we're talking about decades and centuries. Wildfires are immediate and mortally threatening. So um, that ends up being, you know, a really, you know, strong represent, uh, representation of climate, but also just the way that um, climate so obviously can affect wildfire in the way that um, drought cycles and precipitation cycles have changed in the West. And the way I used to do it with my students is just point to, you know, this time of year, any snow-covered mountain. You know, that, that snowy peak is effectively a frozen reservoir that is going to keep the forest below it moist, you know, into the summer as it melts off. When we get less snow, and when that snow melts off earlier in the year and often arrives later in the year, then those forests are available to burn for a much longer period of the year. And if there you know, isn't as much moisture in that forest, then it's got much more potential to burn really big. So an early melt is going to cause more vegetative growth which when it dries out later in the summer, exactly bigger fuel load. Yeah, yeah, so you're gonna get both. You know, and, and also, you know, you know, some counterintuitive things with climate, which we, we've seen in California and here in, in Colorado, where uh, sometimes it's a moist year that exacerbates our fire problem. And if you look at the fire that burned into Santa Rosa, California, uh, six, seven years ago, um, this was after um, a very, very moist season in California. They had seven times their average growth of fine fuels like grasses mm -hmm. outside uh, the communities where this fire burned. And so when you had a spark hit those grasses after that area had returned to drought, you have way more fuel to accept and spread you know, that fire. Yeah. So, um, so I've found climate to be, you know, one of the strongest signals that and we've seen of climate three? change. And that's bucket number three. Okay. And then bucket number four is, uh, you know, it's a big bucket and, and one that has all kinds of stuff in it. But really, we're talking about politics and economics. And this is really the, um, the most immediate of the human factors that engage with wildfire, where, um, you know, political decisions economic decisions that we make about how we deal with the land and how we deal with fire have huge implications. And they're often not made based on what is best for this environment, what is the safest thing to do for this population. They're often made based on dollars and cents or you know who are the political players right. that are going to be empowered or not empowered by this. And so, um, you know, fire is this mythic thing in human experience. You know, almost all of our great religions have, you know, strong fire mythologies. Um, and it's just so core to who we are as people. It's not really surprising that we as political animals would attempt to manipulate this force that we are so closely tied to in ways where we often are not very effective at manipulating or controlling it, or to, as we have with, uh, you know, firefighting and particularly wildland firefighting, overestimate our ability to control this force. Yes, yes. And when you have uh, politicians driving policy, right, in an area where the actual factors are, you know, physics, uh, 
right? Climate driven things. Exactly. Uh, y y there may be a propensity to put science on the back seat in favor of what's politically popular, and, and you can't really win a science argument with a popularity contest. Right, exactly. And, and you know, uh, the, the science on wildfire has advanced so much in recent years, and there's so many um, great researchers working on all aspects of, you know, our, our, our fire problems and to some degree our fire benefits, but very often you're not seeing that advancement and understanding translated into the political sphere and into the decision making that's going on at the local, state, federal level. Do you feel like that could be increased if, I hate to say it, but if the profit motive for uh, wildfire mitigation and damage mitigation was more profitable, would we see more entrance into that field? I think there's a mixed bag there. I, you know, I think that we really have to consider the economics of all of that and, and the profit motive, motive in all of that. Um, most wildland firefighters are familiar with this term, the, the, the uh, uh, fire industrial complex. And you know, with you know, half or more of the money that gets spent by the federal government on wildfire, both you know, preventing wildfires, fighting wildfires, recovering from wildfires, going to the private sector, then you have a profit motive to fight every fire, to use every piece of equipment, to go at every fire with as much uh, force as we can because that's where we make our money. Unless you bid the fire, right? in which case your incentive becomes to put the fire out as quickly as possible and have some money left over. Yeah, and it, but, but in both cases, what gets removed from that is what if we were to let this fire burn? Is this the kind of fire that we should be spending this kind of money on right. and, and throwing all these resources at? You know, in the private sector, you want the work. That's, you know, this is the, that's justifiable. That's the way the system works. So, uh, you know, people that, you know, are driving bulldozers or, or hiring out planes or running the mobile commissary, they want to see as much work as possible. They want to see us going after every fire. Put the fire out in the first four hours. You just lost yourself a lot of work. Exactly. So, so what happens when we, when we see the economic incentives misaligned with the mission incentives? Well, I think we end up spending money in the wrong places and on the wrong issues. Um, and very often we end up, um, you, know, you know, effectively trying to put fires out by dumping dollars on them and not thinking in terms of what's the most effective way to deal with this wildfire, be it, you know, in some cases, let it burn in this area, work, you know, focus, it, focus our investment over here. But um, very often we're going to um, move towards the things that are very obvious that we're trying to get the work done and deal with this fire in a way that the public and politicians will like to see. Right. When there's probably other ways that we can spend that money that would be more effective. I think a really great example of this is how often we want to spend money on, you know, putting planes in the air, dropping, you know, that red fire retardant, which everybody wants to see fighting the fire that's looks threatening great on there. TV. Right? Looks great on TV. Yeah to the detriment of possible efforts to make these communities more resilient to wildfire in advance. So that, right. hey, wouldn't we be better off taking all of that money that's spent on retardant drops that often don't make much of a difference and putting that into crews that are going to do some thinning around these communities, right. helping um, residents understand the kind of work that they can do to make themselves less likely to lose property or, or their lives lives in a wildfire and to also uh, uh, be less likely to put firefighters and emergency responders into risky situations. Yes, right. Uh, and how, how much window screen and soffit mitigation right. and uh, you know, zone one, zone two clearing could be paid for with, with every drop of red sludge. Right. Yeah. But that but that kind of work is not very sexy. No. You, know, you don't get elected that, for that. Right? You don't get elected for that. It does not look as good on TV as the retardant drop out of a plane. Right. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways of, of, of accounting for all this, it doesn't look as good on the balance sheet. Okay. So then what about the people who really end up paying for the fire? 
not the people who paid with their lives, that's the, the, the ultimate cost, right. but the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. If the fire gets put out really quickly, they save a lot of money. If it burns a long time, they lose a lot of money. And if their fire impacts the built environment, you know, they're the ones who really end up picking up the tab on this. So why don't we see them more at the forefront of these prevention mitigation efforts? You know, I think we're starting to see that come around. But for a very long time, um, it's cheaper for a lot of insurance companies who recognize that if you're going to say deal with a property or a community and you want to give them a, a, a fair premium for the protection that uh, you know they have done on their property. Well, the insurance companies recognize that metal roof is great. You know, keeping your wood pile away from the house. Yeah, that's a really good thing. But the most important thing is kind of the day-to-day -day weekly upkeep of that property. Are you are you sweeping up the needles and cleaning out your gutters and you know managing your property in a way to make it more resilient to wildfire? And they don't want to send an insurance adjuster up there all the time to make sure that you're keeping your right. property up. So what's cheaper for them is to just take the cost of uh, you know some higher premiums and spread it out among all of their policies holders, including the majority who actually don't have a wildfire threat. And so you end up using, you know, a huge portion of your, um, uh, your base of, uh, you know, insurance base, your premium base, um, of people who really aren't facing this threat to subsidize the people who are. And I think the insurance companies really starting to, uh, insurance companies overall are starting to deal with that. One problem that we've seen is rather than try to figure out a way to have people pay in relation to the actual threat that they are facing. You just see what we've seen in California and now Florida, not so much with wildfire, but with hurricanes and sea level rise. Insurers just announced, well, we're just not going to insure anybody here anymore. Right. And you know, they, it's they too complicated. It. Yeah. And in many cases, I think they may be harming themselves mm -hmm. because in, in a given area, let's say we pull out of the state of California, well, you know, maybe 95% of the homes weren't at risk in the first place. Right. All your risk was in a small pocket. And unless you're doing the GIS mapping and computations to figure out where the risk is, you're selling yourself short. Yeah. And again, you know, this kind of relates back to, you know, this idea of we don't necessarily spend money in the places where it would be most effective. You know, we have such great mapping tools now. We have so many devices and, you know, imagery, satellites, all these things that we can use to gather a lot of data in a much more efficient and, uh, you know, less expensive way now so that we can be that granular with how we were to, say, manage insurance premiums or things like that. And so I'm hoping that the insurance um, industry will respond um, to, you know, this possibility of, you know, getting that kind of data and that kind of information to help them say, you know, we, we, we have to some degree a responsibility to this community and to our policyholders here to not leave this area, but to be much more precise and granular in how we study this area so that we're making people pay um, a fair but accurate um, fee for the service that we're providing them. Um, in, you know, instead, in the past, what we've seen with the insurance industry is kind of, uh, you know, either blanket decisions like this, well, we're just not going to insure anybody in this area code or in this county, or they have uh, used it as a way to market something to, you know, their um, highest dollar um, uh, uh, customers, for instance, you know, private fire crews. Right. So when Chubb sends out wildfire defense systems exactly. to sit in front of my neighbor's house all summer. Right. right. But not help my house. No, not your and, house. And, you're, and, you're not and one of their customers. Right. And so that may be good for their business model. That may make them, uh, you know, a considerable amount of money, but it doesn't help us deal with the fire crisis. Yeah. You well, know, you right? lived in New York, you know, the, you know, excuse me, waiter, what time is it? Sorry, you're not my table. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I, do, I but I do, I have seen some um, insurance programs um, and discussions in the insurance industry trying to recognize um, the, the business threat that they face with not just the fire crisis, but with climate overall. You know, they are starting to see, you know, stronger 
um, uh, more severe storms and precipitation events, what we just saw in California. They're uh, starting to see, um, you know, uh, you know, what they call, you know, sunny day flooding in Florida and Miami and communities that have never seen this before. And so they're going to have to respond to a number of threats to their business model. And I, I can't see how the uh, knee-jerk reaction of, well, we're just not going to insure anybody in places where that's going on is going to be effective when we see these impacts spreading across the country and, and impacting more and more of their customers. Yeah, and not just harmful to them, but the massive economic ripple of that you know, if your home is no longer insurable, you know, good luck selling it. Right. Good luck getting, you know, the market value, right? So there's going to be this huge economic loss passed through. Yeah. And, that, and you know, and, and, and there will certainly have to be regulation to deal with, you know, with some of these issues as well. And I'm not as, uh, as well versed in that, in that realm. Um, you know, I'm usually just trying to keep myself from running afoul of regulation. <laughs> right. So, so of the part that is in your bailiwick, from what you've seen in the, the couple of decades you've been studying this, you know, what do you think the actionable items are for, for people? Well, I think the most important thing is um, we have uh, for you know, a century now had a philosophy of fighting wildfires. Um, and this is something that um, it's part of the creation myth of the U.S. Forest Service, as uh, the great author uh, Stephen Pine has referred to it. It is something that our uh, federal government has talked to us about. And it's something that is, uh, to some degree, you know, a, a unique part of the American experience, particularly in the West, that you know we can tame nature, that we, if we don't like wildfire, we can eradicate it from the forest like we would uh, an unwanted pest in that forest, you know, an you animal. You get an overgrowth get of the of. other pests that you <laughs> exactly. So it's messing with nature always has these yeah. unintended consequences. And and I think what we you know something that is just you know kind of critically important is to start to think in terms and to get the public to think in terms of, you know, if you're picking a fight with fire, you are picking a fight that you will not win. Right, you know, right. in the long run, you know, nature is going to win. Nature bats, burn. Yeah. nature bats last. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we need to start thinking in terms of living with fire. And, you know, rather than, you know, talking to residents of fire-prone communities about how we're going to fight a fire that threatens their community, we need to talk to them about how are you going to get your community to be resilient and live with fire because we know that fire is coming, is coming here. We know that the, the area around this community is going to burn. Um, you know, there's no 100% guarantee that we can, uh, that any property can survive the kind of fires that we're seeing now um, in the same way that, you know, it's far less than 100% guarantee that you would be able to stand up to one of these fires and, and, and hold it back. But we can build smarter. We can live smarter. We can have residents who think in terms of when they're buying a house, what is the egress and ingress like to this house? How safe is it for me to get in and out of here? What improvements can I make here to be resilient to wildfire, to flooding, to the kinds of changes that we're seeing happen to our landscape? And you know, how do I live best with this landscape rather than how do I battle this landscape to live the way I want to. Yes, right. Because as you said, nature gets the last word. Yeah. So, so you really can't solve a problem unless you're asking the right questions. And we've been framing it that, you know, wildfire is the enemy when really what we're concerned about is wildfire damage, wildfire impact on homes and communities. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more narrowly defined problem for, for which we could have a solution, right? We could have better building codes, we could have greater distances between homes and radiant heat sources, and we could have, you know, ember intrusion reduction measures, right? Those are actually actionable things that probably are in the budget. Yeah. If you're not trying to put out all of nature's fires. Yes, and all, you know we have to acknowledge that there, you know, we get back to the profit motive and, you know, um, 
we have to work better with uh, you know the insurance industry, with the building industry, with the real estate industry. Uh, you know, you can find just dozens of stories throughout the West of um, pushes by firefighters, fire marshals, public officials to have stronger codes for a community that's going to be built in this landscape or another landscape, and then you know a, a strong pushback from the people who would build the homes or sell those homes that oh you're going to make them unaffordable. It's going to hurt our business model right. and you as, know, as if like soffit screens are really going to drive the price of your house up right? and as if you know you, you know you're being fair to uh, as a, as one of these business owners discussing with the people you're selling these homes to the fact that you know the greatest cost that you would face with this house is losing your life if it was to burn in a wildfire right. maybe it's smart that you spend a little extra money on these these um, safety features that you can put in and and some of these, you know, really low-hanging fruit options that we've got, um, with the hope that you never will have to use it. If so, hey, good for you. Right. But you will be able to sleep a lot easier knowing that you've done everything you can to live with this environment in the way that this environment um, functions long-term. Yeah, and in terms of you making your home more resilient to fire, uh, you know, I'm not sure people should think about that in terms of their own survivability, because really, if the fire's coming, you shouldn't be in the house. Mm -hmm. What you're hoping is that there's a house to come back to. Sure. And, and, and those egress routes exactly. really need to be, right? When, when they designed my driveway and they said, we designed it so that a fire truck could get up there. Okay, when 200 homes are on fire, no fire truck's coming up to my house, right? But, but what is gonna happen is me and 200 neighbors on my area are all gonna be you know, head, heading for the nearest exit to try to get us to a Holiday Inn 100 miles away. And ending up on a road like we saw in, in Hawaii in, where you're in, in bumper to bumper traffic yeah. or paradise. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, you know it, you, you've got to think in terms of, you know, being able to get to your home. And, you know, it's unlikely you're certainly not going to have a fire truck at every house. Um, or five, which or, is what it would take to to save a house yeah. but you know having your driveway prepared both for you to be able to get out of it quickly and for emergency responders to be able to use it maybe not even to save your house maybe they're parking there to save a neighbor's house or to deal with something else but sure. to but to be prepared for that is really important. But if we haven't designed the rest of the roads in that community to be able to handle the kind of traffic that uh, an evacuation is going to put on them, to be able to be uh, move emergency responders back and forth on uh, on this road or through this community when you when you've got that kind of evacu evacuation, evacuation going, yeah. then yeah, then again we're you know we're missing something that. Um, you know, it's, uh, you would not be a huge um, increase in, uh, you know, the use of taxes for, you know, what would be incredible gain in the prevention of loss of life and the effectiveness of dealing with the emergency that might come onto that community. So it sounds like what you're leading towards is that the greatest impact is not going to be from a new retardant or even from a new building code or a new airplane but it's simply from conversations. Those conversations that need to take place between builders, realtors, insurance companies, consumers, and policymakers. Yeah, and, and there's been and that, some- and that's Science is probably a lot easier to work with than people. Uh, well, science, you know, as complicated as it is, and and as as much of an investment of time as uh, you can put into it, science generally, you know, comes somewhere close to you know a fairly um, solid answer. You know, uh, you know, the math adds up, and you right. know, you come up with this. It's may, maybe not totally perfect, but you know, we've really got um, a fairly good understanding of the data. Um, you know, the human factor, as we call it, is just always really unpredictable um, but one thing that has come out in uh, you know in recent years in research you know on you know the soft sciences uh, you know of, of people um, is uh, that um, communities and homeowners are more responsive to people like them 
that come and try to convince them about the need to live with fire and to have their homes and communities be resilient and to invest in the uh, type of uh, emergency preparedness that we're talking about than they are a scientist coming to them or the mayor or even a firefighter. Right. So, you know, there are more and more of these programs where what they do is they take homeowners who have successfully worked in their community and maybe a group of them, and then they'll go over to another community and they'll talk to them and say, hey, I know you're thinking that, boy, you know, they're just going to cut down all the trees around my house and it's going to look awful and I'm not going to be able to have my grill outside and all this. And that's not true. Here's our community and we're really good. You know, we, we've got this great uh, fire safe rating. You know, we've gotten um, all kinds of accolades for how well we've prepared for wildfire. And look how great the community looks. We've still got trees. We'll you know, know we still can grill outside. Mean anything after the fire. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> they wouldn't mean anything after the fire. But the, but the yeah. community that they visit is more likely to respond to them and say, hey, you know, you're right. That's not that bad. That's and it wasn't that expensive. And so, yeah, this peer-to-peer -peer work and community-to-community -community work has uh, gained a lot of traction in communities where other efforts to, um, you know, convince the community of the need to be prepared for wildfire have been less effective. So it's the neighborhood watch model. Right. It's yeah. It's the block captain and this and it's it's all peers. And, and does the fire community need to reinvent neighborhood watch or can neighborhood watch expand from crime to the threats of, well, from nature? You know, one thing, you know, with that neighborhood watch model where I think it's been really, uh, really effective is um, in prescribed burning where, you know, you're increasingly seeing um, uh, Agencies, you know, probably not the U.S. Forest Service, and that's not to be critical of the U.S. Forest Service, but they have a different mission. But you know, um, more local uh, county, state agencies that are overseeing prescribed burns invite members of the community to come and watch. And in uh -huh. some cases, you know, get them trained up enough where they get to drop some stuff out of a right. drip torch and be a part of the process and then, you know, watch as the burn is conducted and then come back and visit again. Um, you know, maybe a month or two later to see what happens after, you know, one of these low intensity burns burns through a forest and the, you know, kind of response that the vegetation has and, you know, what the healthy forest looks like yeah. to get more buy into that. You know, because, you know, uh, our, our model historically has been you just hear that there, you know, are a bunch of crazy firefighters that are going to light the forest on fire by my community and what do they think they're doing? Um, whereas, you know, you can go out and spend a little more time on that burn, have some community members there to bear witness to it and learn what the goals were. How did the forest respond to this? How do they do that? And then spread that word back to the community. Hey, I you know, went and watched that, you know, and sure. it was, you know, you know, it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be like. You know, it was really, you know, smart how they did it. And there were just a lot of really interesting people there working on it. And they explained the science and, you know, the way they do the burn. And, you know, they understand that, you know, there's a, a whole series of criteria that we have to meet before they start dropping fire on the ground and all of the standards that they adhere to. And yeah, P-burns go wrong every once in a while, but the vast majority don't and the vast majority of forests uh, and, and other areas that um, are, are burned in this way show, you know, a market increase in health and, you know, you know something that they can see. They do but only a tiny percentage of these mitigation efforts, be it thinning or prescribed burn, happen in areas that are close enough to the community that they actually would act as a pre-burned buffer to protect right. the community. So you're, when they go off you know, in Boulder and they burn off Heil Ranch, you know, that does nothing to right. reduce the likelihood that my neighborhoods or any, really any other sure. residential neighborhood is gonna burn down. So it's great, it's great practice for them to go do that but we have to figure out how to apply the prescribed burn, you know, well, locally. You know, I think part of the hope there is that if you can, you know, build that community buy-in and understanding, then we'll start to be able to get those burns to where they need to be held. Because yeah. you're exactly right. Um, you know, we end up with 
budgets to get these burns done and a time frame to get the burns done and you end up with you know so many smoke sensitive people that are going to complain about it and you know understandably you know smoke is a big issue now with wildfire in this country um, you know uh, <clears throat> fear that it will go wrong and destroy property uh, not a lack of understanding of what it's going to do to this forest and it's not going to raise your forest and ruin it you know you're going to be able to go for a hike there in a couple of months and it's going to look great so they understand all that plants and flowers <coughs> coming in so yeah. that we don't have this problem that you know we've seen over the years where you end up spending money on burns in areas where they won't do that much to protect communities but they're easier to get um, implemented and accepted yeah um, <clears throat> so you know I think that that's really important another thing that I've uh, I've thought a lot about is you know, particularly when we deal with communities and the smoke issue, you know, we talk about prescribed burns. And I'm kind of curious as to whether um, the, the firefighting community will ever start talking about prescribed smoke. That smoke from a prescribed burn in a low intensity fire, even though it irritates people's asthma, even though you don't like smelling it, that is far less uh, impactful on the community and generally, at least the research that I've read, has far fewer uh, uh, health damaging components in it than smoke from a megafire. And so if that, if that forest was to really catch on fire and not be this low intensity ground fire, but to be a big crown fire and you know, putting out a huge smoke plume, then you're really gonna see some health impacts from smoke. And so can we convince people to be more accepting of fire saying, hey, you know, yeah, you're gonna breathe some smoke now, but it's gonna make that forest so much less likely to put out the kind of smoke that's really gonna threaten your health. Right. We're Cases like Canada, they can't manage to keep their smoke to themselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, there's a border issue for you. Yeah, that's right. We're protecting the wrong border. Yeah. <laughs> Far more people were hurt by the smoke coming south than the immigrants coming north. I, yeah, I haven't studied that, you know, so, uh, but, but nonetheless, yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but it's palpable. But it is palpable, and I and I think that that I mean that is a really interesting issue. In fact, I just talked about it with my um, with uh, my staff this morning, just as an aside. That you know um, that those fires in Canada that pumped that smoke out that hit Washington D.C. and hit New York, you finally had some people that have ignored the wildfire problem yes. for decades suddenly recognize oh so this is actually one of the impacts that you've been talking about and now it's affecting me in new york maybe i there should think about this right and and and, I, and that honestly i got some pleasure out of that uh seeing new yorkers respond to it when for the first time they realized it wasn't just a west coast thing yeah that, that actually outside of manhattan there's a place called the usa <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I grew up in Manhattan, and when they said, you know, things are bad down south, I thought they meant down around NYU. And yeah. Then, you know, <laughs> right. right. Well, when I was talking to editors about my book before, you know, when I was, you know, going under contracts or, you know, whatever it was, you know, 12 or 14 years ago, it was astounding to me how many people I talked to about this issue who, who basically treated it, oh, that's just this exotic thing that happens out there in those forests out in the West. And it's like, well, no, that, it, it, this is something that's going to have global impact yeah. and is going to have uh, really significant economic impacts. It's going to have really significant health impacts all across the country. All across the world. Yeah. Right. It, it was Chile this week. Last week it was Brazil. It's Australia. It's the south of France. It's Greece. Yeah, and, I, and I wonder about local expertise whether anyone other than CAL FIRE really gets enough experience in wildfire containment and uh, civil protection to be good at it, or whether we should kind of move to a, an international firefighting module that could respond and save the guy who presses grapes for a living from getting killed that night trying to put out a local fire when really they should stay home and press the grapes and you know, the international fire team should come in and manage that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, the, how something like that would work out because I, I can recall years ago talking with, um, you know, uh, uh, an incident commander um, 
about local knowledge and he talked about how when he started in wildfire you know you would go into an area and you know very often you would just replace the crew that was fighting the wildfire because very often most of them were not red carded and so if you worked for the feds you know they needed to have the red cards and so right. you're pushing these guys out and uh, you know uh, there was you know n n not to you know fall back on the, the the Famous Reagan quote, but you know, I'm I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah, you know, right. and you, you just go away. We'll take care of it. Right. And he said, you know, actually, the you know one of the big improvements that I've seen is instead now we go in and you talk to the guys who've been doing it for a long time and you say, hey let's sit down and you tell me about this landscape and the vegetation here and how fires behave here and you know because you know one of the problems I think that we've had in the United States with wildfire is that we have tried to solve uh, we've tried to apply blanket policies to something that is extremely particular and distinct you know you cannot fight a fire in um, a lodgepole pine forest at a higher elevation here in Colorado the way you would fight a chaparral fire in California. Right. And we have hundreds of different forest and you know vegetative ecotones that have different relationships with wildfire. And the people who live there and have been dealing with fire there the longest are the ones who understand that the best. And so there's got to be a way of balancing, okay, we can get the resources on the ground and we, you know, we've, you know, we have a lot of expertise that we can bring from other parts of the world. But, you know, there are going to be people that live there that have been dealing with this for a really long time who are actually going to have, you know, incredibly valuable knowledge sure. that will make a real impact. And so trying to find a balance between those two, uh, those, uh, two uh, groups, you know, the 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 you know global or national um, experts who you know do this all the time and can bring all you know incredible resource and uh, experience to fighting a wildfire and combining that with the cluster of people who've been doing this here for a really long time and they're probably all volunteers and they don't do it full time and they don't have any particular specialized training in it except that they know this landscape and they yeah. know this vegetation and they know what's happened there in the past and and you know getting those two to merge and work together i think is you know uh you know the way to have the most powerful um group in any given landscape as far as dealing with 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 any type of um, sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, natural disaster. Well, it would seem that in, in fire response, there could really be this giant, you know, if this, then that, uh, based on topography, vegetation type, moisture, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and probably there's enough knowledge out there, but it's so siloed that, you know, only the, only the Greeks know how to put out the olive tree fires and only the, these guys right. know how to put out the chaparral fires. And there is no you know, giant AI database uh, that, that yeah. you know, that could pass wisdom from one location and database to the next. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, you know, we talk a lot about human factors and, you know, here's, a, you know, an upside human factor in that, you know, we do have expertise on the ground in these places. And, you know, from covering wildfires in Greece and in Israel and some of these other locations, um, they are all confronting the same thing that we're confronting here. They're all seeing, uh, you know, an increase in fire, you know, more bigger fires, um, fires behaving in ways that are um, unusual. Um, and so, you know, they, uh, you know, they can speak a lot of the same language that, you know, a lot of us are speaking that look at this, you know, in more of a national or global perspective and also uh, can, you know, speak to those specific things. You know, this is the way fires used to be here. Here's what they're doing now. Here's what we've found effective in dealing with them. Yes. So just, just the way uh, IBM took everything we know about fighting one side of a chess match and fed it into Deep Blue. <laughs> and defeated Gary Kasparov, you know, would there be a, a model where we looked at a wildfire as a hundred or 200,000 acre chess match where the fire has its assets, you know, fuel, wind speed, elevation, slope, etc. And then the fire teams have their assets, aerial, ground troops, lines, picks and axes, toothbrushes, whatever, right? Is there a role for an AI to increase our optimization of responses. I, you know, I think that that's you know one of the you know myriad possible um, 
ways in which AI can be really, really valuable for this. And you know, it, it, you know, folks that have worked in wildfire for a while, you know, have seen many programs come to do what you are describing. You know, lots of times in the case of um, of you know emergency responses like this, it's how quickly can you get that information and put it together? Yeah. Because you'll see scientists come out with, well, hey, you know, I've got this latest thing or this latest program. Let me or tell you what happened two thing. years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and it, you know, uh, but you know, the the emergency responder needs to know, okay, what does that tell you is going to happen in in an hour? and right. in two hours in front of me. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, the amount of data that we can get and the value of that data, you know, particularly just given um, the information that we can get about weather and climate features, you know, what soil moistures are, what fuel moistures are, what's the weather doing, what's the wind planned to do, you know, where, you know, how is the, you know, how are these things uh, uh, going to change? How are things that are happening way up in the atmosphere likely to interact with things that are happening at the ground level? All of the, that data is just amazing that we've got now. But being able to put all that together in a way where somebody who has to make decisions on the ground in an ad ad adrenaline rich yeah. and um, at least immediate uh, data uh, poor environment. In other words, you know, you you may be able to get all of this technical data, but you can't see your fire truck because of the smoke. Right. Things like that. How do we get that so that they can put together information and really quickly, easy to digest um, packets that are really valuable to the crew on the ground, yeah. so that they can make really fast decisions. You know that you know in their cases, you know, can be life and death decisions. You know, well, they're very serious. And, and when it's one case, it's one matter to just continue to load data into incident command trucks. It's another thing, though, to actually make interpretations and recommendations based on that exactly. data to supplement that adrenaline overloaded uh, sure. commander's ability to make plans yeah. out of that data. And, and, and information overloaded. You know, and that, yeah. yeah, I mean, it can, you know, it, it, it can lead to, you know, a decision paralysis because, you know, it's, it, yeah, I mean, all you have to do is look at one big fire's, um, <clears throat> you know, morning report and thumb through that to realize that, you know, there's so much, there's, it's just a flood of information. How do I figure out the information in here that is really critically valuable and how much of this is is uh, you know is chafe is just yeah. stuff that's going to be in the way you know that we don't what, know right yeah, and yeah. it's very hard to figure that out yeah. and but maybe that's something that AI can do you know can understand how to sort these things and you know here are the 10 bits of information you need to know for the next hour yeah, yeah the, right. the key the key things that you need to know. Here are the things that you should be watching as they're updated, you know, in real time. Here are the things that you should just know for the entire day to day. Yeah. You know, and, and and putting together information in a way uh, that is more immediately useful. Yeah, I would see that uh, Deep Blue's younger, smarter grandson would be Deep Red, <laughs> and Deep Red is watching all the things the fire's doing you. Do, doing you and making recommendations. Yeah, too. yeah, you know, but again, I think it also gets back to this idea of, you know, I think the job is going to change. You know, if we keep seeing this steep increase in wildfire, then, um, yeah, there are, there are gonna be times where we're gonna try to manage a fire, we're gonna try to steer it, we're gonna try to do all the things that, uh, that wildland firefighters have always done and, and do quite effectively. But we're going to have more and more decisions of, you know, we cannot stand up to a fire like this. We're not going to be able to make a difference here. How do we save the most lives and the most property? And, and how do you deal with the idea of, you know, maybe don't send a man to do a robot's job? Yeah, well, robots are going to be really interesting. In fact, there was a, one of my uh, young reporters is uh, looking into doing a story about a, a, a robot that they've tried out to uh, go into uh, forests and, and gather deadfall and logs. You know, and you know, how much more effective it is than humans doing that. Right. And so you could see, you know, cutting a fire line, you know, if we had you know, a robot fire crew that could go in and do that. You know, first of all, uh, you don't have to pull that crew out um, with the same urgency that you would pull out a human crew, you know, if things go, go south. Right. Um, but secondly, you know, uh, what kind of information can 
that technology be gathering while they're doing that and sending back to um, you know to a uh, a headquarters or to an incident commander looking at you know oh well maybe we need to you know reroute this this fire line or maybe we need to think in terms of you know stopping this fire line here we probably don't have to go beyond this maybe this river or stream that we thought would help us out and be part of our fire line isn't going to be effective at that um, you know you know you you know, when you've got a, a robot in there um, you actually have you know a pretty powerful computer in there too it's a mobile sensor suite exactly yeah not just a workforce and and, and I think as we see less and less people drawn towards the fire service and the the ranks of the labor diminishing mm-hmm. um, you know I'm not sure that we should say that you know that's why we can't fight fires any more than we would say well the reason that we don't have enough electricity is because there's not enough coal miners <laughs> yeah right you know well maybe we shouldn't be mining coal and maybe we shouldn't be putting people in there yeah you know maybe we should uh, be using more technology well yeah and i there aren't that many cases where uh the result of a disastrous fire would have been that much different if you'd thrown that many more bodies at it. Right. Um, you know, lots of times the always worry, well, if you had the, the entire workforce that you wanted, then would you just be putting that many more people at risk? Exactly. Yeah. So if, if we moved you out of your role at uh, Inside Climate and uh, out of authors writing all these books uh, and made you the fire czar with, with uh, un- un- <laughs> unquestioned and unlimited power, what changes would you make? Wow, that is a, a question I have never been asked before. The fires are that uh, that uh, that it, that's the superhero I want to be. Well, um, we have the drugs are and all the others are. Yeah. You know, and, well, no, I'm just trying to imagine what I'd look like in a comic book. Um, but uh, pretty interesting. Lightning bolts all over. Yeah, kind yeah. Of a Thor theme going. Um, well, I, you know, I would. Um, try and I know it's very difficult to be much more aggressive about dealing with uh, you know uh, our our vegetation issue and you know vegetation control as far as introducing prescribed burns and thinning operations and all the things that we need we know have to happen um, I think that the US Forest Service has made huge strides in how they do these things um, but what we saw happen in New Mexico with you know just within months of you know the discussion of how we how much we needed to increase prescribed burning in the country to have these uh, two prescribed burns turn into the most destructive fire or the largest fire in state history uh, and lead to a shutdown of that, which is effectively what we saw happen in 2012 here in Colorado, yep. um, is uh, you know I I don't think that we can completely prevent prescribed burns every once in a while from jumping containment. Um, right. No more than we can prevent some people from being allergic to vaccinations. Exactly. It doesn't mean you don't do them. It just means sometimes that we're going to have go to accept some things yeah. that, that, that they go wrong. But I do think that we can um, uh, you know, work much harder with these communities for, so that they understand the risks and the need. They understand the threat that uh, you know, we're trying to head off as we go into these things and we can prevent you know kind of what we saw yesterday in Oregon where you know we've had a uh, you know a burn boss indicted because of a prescribed burn that jumped containment and you know the tensions between the forest service and the ranchers there you know maybe there are ways to um, to try to mitigate that we're never all going to agree but you know we can work on you know uh, having a better relationship with communities, getting communities to understand that you know you're going to have to live with fire, and sometimes the fire you're going to have to live with is the fire that we intentionally start yep. to try to prevent disasters. So that would certainly be uh, you know uh, high on the top of my list. Um, I would really think m- uh, about any possible way to. Um, change the calculus of how we spend money on wildfire to try to take money uh, that may not be spent in the wisest ways now on you know dramatic interventions to deal with wildfires once they've started and try to invest that in preparing communities, preparing landscapes for the inev- inevitable fires that are going to happen there. And uh, I would 
probably in you know my you know whatever dramatic fires are away I could do it try to convince the public that you have chosen to live in a fire prone landscape we can not um, remove fire from these landscapes any more than we can remove the ocean if you decide to live on a cruise ship right. and you know we are going to try to be smart about how we live with fire we're going to manage what we can we're going to be resilient to as possible to what we can't manage but we're also going to you know rely on the public and everybody in the public to just be aware that you know fire is um, going to happen it's going to happen particularly here in the West regularly in any landscape that we live in and you need to be as thoughtful and um, mindful of that as you need to be about rainstorms that come you know we don't want fire as often as we want rainstorms but mm -hmm. these you know yeah I like to tell people you know fire you know think of fire as a weather phenomenon yeah. you know are you gonna go out there and, and that's try another to, book right fire right weather, exactly right? yeah which is terrific yeah uh, I John will Vallance say book, yeah, yeah John John violence book is just great um, but um, but yeah, so that that would probably be the you know the the main things that I would uh, you know I would uh, try to do. You know, we're still going to have to confront wildfires. You know, there are going to be some that you know you know we just have to do what we can to prevent this from turning into a worse disaster. But what we've seen in California is these fires are continuing to get bigger. They're continuing to threaten communities. You know, uh, when I first mentioned that scientists were telling me you know uh, you know 20 years ago that you know we're going to start to see fires that just burn over towns and burn over communities and you can't stop it I you know had people just say that's just totally not true if we spent the right amount of money and if we fought fires right we'd be able to prevent that and you know now we're just seeing that as almost an annual experience yeah. and uh, I you know I do think we have to you know uh, invest wisely in how we confront wildfires and how we deal with wildfires but we have to really get the public, you know, particularly with the population boom that we're seeing in the Western United States, to really understand the fact that you know this is part of the West. Fire yeah. is part of the West, yeah, and you're going to have to learn to live with it. Yeah, it's like trying to explain to the kid, you built your sandcastle at the edge of the ocean at low tide. Nothing you can do. Nothing to stop you can it. do is going. The ocean's coming back, and yeah. you're, you know, some stu stuff's going to get lost. Right, yeah, very interesting. So you've been uh, studying and writing about fire and the fire beat for, you know. Since the late 80s, since, really, when I could. You know, yeah, obviously I was, a, a, I was a news guy, so right. you know, when it came my way. Um, What's your next area of interest? I know, you, you know you've written books in different categories. Mega fire was the fire one, high crimes. You know, is there a next thing, or do you feel like well, there's enough meat on the fire bones that this will be your remaining interest. Well, so I, you know, I haven't taken on another book because I do, you know, I'm a news guy, I worked in newspapers most of my life, even when I was doing books. And uh, I, um, w after Megafire came out and, uh, and you know, just before I was going to work for Inside Climate News, I, you know, uh, really thought long and hard, do I want to do another book that takes six or seven years and the landscape may have changed a lot in that time, we're seeing this happen so fast, or do I want to, you know, get back to my news roots and try to drive a place that is uh, doing, you know, what I consider to be just the point of the spear as far as yes. climate and environment coverage. And yeah. so we've done some really good fire coverage that uh, I've occasionally written, but more often assigned and worked with folks. Um, there's a, 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 a really good young journalist in California named Ann Marshall Chalmers, who was uh, a fellow with us uh, for uh, a while. And then I continued to work with her as a freelancer. And uh, we did two stories that I, uh, that I thought she just did a terrific job on. One was, um, following people who had lost their mobile homes in California, which was a really interesting um, look at how the housing crisis in California and the fire crisis have merged. And the people oh. at the bottom in mobile homes who often don't own the land where their mobile home is, often are retirees or young families with children and don't have a lot of resources, you know, uh, having a fire come and burn your mobile homes, and mobile homes are considerably more likely to burn in a wildfire than regular structures. 
structures, um, often just shuffles them right into poverty, you know, and, and into situations that they'll never recover from, you know. And so it was just a terrific narrative following, you know, uh, uh, two women in particular who had lost their their mobile homes in, in wildfires and, you know, the challenges that that imposed on them. And then, you know, as we were doing that story, um, there was another fire by Weed, California. This would have been, you know, uh, two years ago, year and a half ago. And uh, this was, uh, uh, burnt, this destroyed a neighborhood called Lincoln Heights, which is a fascinating uh, and kind of unknown aspect of the Great Migration. And this it was one of the last of these communities of African Americans who left the South during Jim Crow, moved to California to work for timber operations. And the timber mill in Weed, California, which had provided the opportunity for them to have their own community, even during segregation, then ended up being, you know, uh, later in, uh, you, know, you know, decades later, not being such a great neighbor, contaminated their water, you know, caused one problem after another, and then eventually with a cogeneration plant, started the fire that burned down the entire neighborhood. Um, and those are the kinds of fire stories that I find fascinating. I mean, the flames and the smoke are dramatic, and we should write about those, you know, particularly when they're threatening people's property or their lives. But I find that the stories in the background, you know, the economic stories, the stories of people, how they've dealt with these things, are the ones that I really find uh, fascinating and where the fire as this great human metaphor is tied to so many other aspects of our lives. Um, another thing that we've written quite a bit about at Inside Climate News, and uh, you know, if I was to do another book, I would consider doing a book about this, although it's, uh, you know, I, I worry that it would be, uh, pardon the fire pun, a little too dry, um, but uh, the realization of smoke and uh, you know, how um, much more understanding we have of the perils of all kinds of smoke, but particularly of smoke from really serious wildfires, which has you know, huge amounts of PM 2.5 and, and ozone that have you know, fairly and immediate. But all, yeah, yeah, also metals and benzene and all kinds of carcinogens and things like that. And we're just really just starting to understand that. And that is a way, as we discussed earlier, that you know, the um, megafire burning in Montana or in Canada can have a really distinct impact on New York City or Minneapolis or someplace that, you know, far from the flames. Um, you know, in a way that, you know, the impacts of these um, environmental changes that we're seeing trickle down, uh, you know, far from where the actual drama is occurring. And, and not that they would necessarily be uninvited, but does a community that's smoke impacted have a right to address the fire where the fire is, even if that's in another municipality or another country? Could New York send firefighters Mm -hmm. to protect their own, to protect New Yorkers, to Canada to do smoke mitigation or fire mediation. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the politics of that because I think smoke is the way that we are seeing a lot of the political dialogue move now, you know, particularly after Washington, D.C. and New York were really smoked out, you know, and there's, you know, all these comments about how, you know, Canada doesn't manage its forests right, and it's like, you know, you're talking about, you know, the largest expanse of boreal forest in the world, and, you know, exactly what do we expect uh, Canadians right. to be doing in there right. to prevent this from happening. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that's a really, uh, you know, it's going to be a fascinating um, it's going to be a fascinating future in that realm of international diplomacy and wildfire. You know, smoke's going to be a big aspect of that, what we talked about earlier with, you know, the way that um, we see so many countries having to go and help other countries. You know, um, back when I was covering the... the um, the Mount Carmel fire in Israel back in 2010, and there were 10 countries that sent, um, you know, uh, firefighters and resources, including the super tanker from the U.S. going yeah. over there and, yeah. I think, making one pass on Global the fire. Global super tanker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as, yeah, uh, uh, yeah so, some of the decisions as to the aid that was offered were probably better than others. Um, but, you know, this idea that, you know, we are going to see an increasing amount of wildfire diplomacy 
and you know how do we help one another with this with a problem that that uh, you know we learn from smoke and occasionally from the flames um, you know does not respect our political borders or our political processes right there is there is one climate uh, we all live inside that climate there's one atmosphere and we're all breathing it yeah. And there's nothing that happens anywhere that's not impacting everywhere else. Yeah, well, if you look at the struggles, that, you know, which I cover a lot, um, of the Conference of the Parties, of the, uh, um, the UN's annual climate talks, and uh, the criticisms and disappointment in that process, um, you know, I look at that and I think a lot about, okay, how are we going to deal with some of the more immediate problems that we're going to need to have international cooperation on, like wildfire? Um, Whatever serves as the basis for international, uh, you know, yeah, right. We're very good yeah. at helping one another out, you yeah, know, in, in, in the heat of the moment and right. in a crisis. But we're not so good at, uh, at dealing with the underlying factors that require compromise over the long term between a bunch of different parties in, in, in different nations. And, and realistic, we should, we should probably look for solutions that don't require that because we've never been good at it. Yeah. And, and the likelihood that we're going to get good at it just because the fire's hotter is, I think, slim. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think you know, what we've seen is uh, we, we tend to respond with a little bit of anger and, and a lot of finger pointing as these things change rather than looking for the uh, areas of opportunity where we actually might be able to mitigate some of the problems that we're seeing. Yeah, right. Michael, thank you so much for my pleasure for joining me today. The the book is Megafire. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, really great insights and understandings. If you're not enjoying breathing the smoke, but you want to know why, uh, <laughs> Megafire uh, lends some insights there. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, you or anybody else that listens to this has any tips for me at Inside Climate News, please feel free to send me an email. All right. And, and the best way to reach you is? Uh, well, michael.cotis at insideclimatenews.org. Great. And okay. we're free every day with investigative uh, climate journalism. So, Wonderful. you know, I've been reading it for about four years and love it. So it's really, really great. I'm gonna, I've never done this before, but I'm going to do that thing where they point down as if, like, there's text over here. So <laughs> <laughs> follow yeah. this link. Here's how to reach, uh, how to reach Michael. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. You've been uh, watching or listening to... The Fire Break, I'm Steve Wolf. We're sponsored by Team Wildfire. Thanks for joining us. See you at the next time. Take care.